Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. This is Daniel. A bunch of cars are going to drive by as I start this. Um, so, <laughs> uh, this is going to be, again, primarily a call-in episode. I do have an unboxing at the end, or an unenveloping, we'll call it. Um, but I got some pretty interesting calls about, uh, you know, how you might use races or creating races and classes for your uh, for your table and how players might be involved in that. We got calls from Jason, from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, from BJ, from the Arcane Aim List, which was part of the reason why I was talking about that, or the, the inspiration that I was really, uh, drawing off of. Um, we've got Kevin from Redcaps, and also Rob, who, for, aka Minion, from Confessions of a Wheat Timber's Bushy, where uh, I was also I was pulling off some information, inspiration from him about the idea of uh, taboos and, uh, you know, ways to to make the, the demi-human races uh, stand out. You know, maybe they're... Uh, or you know, maybe uh, give them penalties to allow them to go beyond the, the normal levels, what do you think is part of the conversation. When I say normal levels, I mean like if you're using level caps in old school D&D. But in any case, uh, we'll have an unboxing at the end, and uh, let's get to it. Okay, I was about to put this out, and then I realized that maybe I do have something else to say about this, maybe to, to stir up the conversation besides all these awesome uh, call-ins. You know, uh, not that long ago, I, if you are following the world of Hunters and Dragons, um, Wizards of the Coast uh, came out with uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, I think it's called. And in that, my understanding, I do not have it, but I've watched a whole bunch of videos about it. Some people were upset about the various things, but whatever. Um, but one of the things that it seems like they're setting up now for the future is that if you are going to... Uh, that a PC could theoretically pay, play any, any race. And, you know, because they keep making more and more races available, or species, I guess. Um, and what you would do is have like the you know if you if you're familiar with fifth edition whatever race uh you choose or species it affects your ability scores and gives you a couple of little bonuses so it might be like if you're a half orc you know you might get a bonus to your constitution and a bonus to your strength and in addition to that you might get dark vision and you get maybe something else right so uh what they've kind of come up with is this more generic formula where like if you want if there's a uh, species or race that you want to create as a player character um, that's not made in one of the books already, where you just have kind of this standard, like, give a bonus to two abilities, give them dark vision, and whatever. I don't, again, I don't know exactly what this is. Somebody who plays 5th edition or has Tasha's can call in and let me know, maybe uh, uh, clear this up a little bit. But what I think is interesting about this is that this is kind of what I'm talking about, right? Like, if you... If you all go all the way back to original Dungeons and Dragons, they essentially say you could theoretically play anything, just work with the dungeon master. And now Fifth Edition is coming around to that direction. It seems like, right? Instead of uh, saying these are the races that are available or species that you could theoretically play just about anything, but here is the way the bonuses and stuff are going to work. Now, whether or not that works out or is realistic, or however you want to look at it, I mean, who knows? Uh, but I think what is interesting about it is that when you look at a game, and I know when I played 5th edition more, uh, you know, and I used to uh, frequent those those uh, forums and blogs and stuff, a lot of times people were uh, picking, like, an ideal race uh, species for different things. Like, you might be, if you're going to be a bard, right, then you would be a half-elf because they get the, the highest bonus in the charisma stat, which is what you want for a bard, I guess. And they also have some other things that, that just make them appropriate, let's say, for a bard. And... That was kind of one of the complaints. Well, people was like, oh, you know, then in the end, it's only a, 
uh, you know, an illusion of choice because really you're always going to choose the species that is going to give you the best ability score bonuses uh, to to be the class you want to be. So really, there is no choice, and you know, that was the, the the cry, right? And now when this came out, it was like this doesn't make sense. But the reality is, is I think it's kind of cool because if you want to play a fighter and you wanted to be, um, you know, let's say a, a a species that wouldn't typically have bonuses in let's say the fighter's prime attribute, which I guess would be strength, uh, or dexterity, I suppose, in 5th edition, um, you could, in theory, be, you know, create your own version of it, right? So I'm not a uh, uh, a regular dwarf, I'm a, a you know, lightfoot dwarf, or, uh, you know, twinkletoes dwarf, or whatever, and, and, and those dwarves are very, uh, they're not, uh, you know, Stout and, and and big and bulky. They're 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 very thin and, and they 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 jump around and they've got like a lots of uh, you know they're known for their agility and they get a bonus in their dexterity. And now you can play this this uh, you know this rogue with the high dexterity um, by choosing that class that you've now created. And again, I, I I suppose if you're looking at this from an old school point of view, you might be thinking, well, you know, ability scores, who cares? But you know, in a game like Fifth Edition, the ability scores are important. They're used for so much in the game that. You can't overlook that. You know, it's easy enough to say when you're playing uh, an OSR-type game, wow, roll 3d6 down the line and just play it as how you want, which is great when, you know, that doesn't affect 90% of what you do in the game. It pretty much affects your combat, right? And, I guess, experience points if you have a low prime requisite. But in a game like 5th Edition, your ability scores are used for pretty much everything you do. So you want to make sure you have a class or a character that has decent ability scores, otherwise you're, it's not going to be able to succeed in anything, which isn't going to be fun if everybody else succeeds. So I get the reason why people do that. I mean, it's not the type of game that I play that much or that I really enjoy myself. Um, I prefer level to, to dictate uh, how good a character is versus ability scores. That's my general, uh, general vibe that I enjoy. But I understand why... Um, you know, people want better ability scores. And I wonder if this isn't actually very good, right? I mean, uh, the idea that you can create pretty much any class you want. Uh, but I also wonder, like, since they seem to be, Wizards of the Coast, seem to be putting out lots of these books that have, like, additional species you can play and different uh, classes and stuff, if they're creating a system where they don't need to keep feeding all these species to people to buy books, then I wonder... I wonder if that's going to affect their books. Like, doesn't that, doesn't that shoot themselves in the foot? I mean, maybe not. I, I have no idea. Um, clearly, I am not running a, a large uh, RPG company, so I have no idea what, what works or what doesn't there. But I do think it's kind of interesting that now it seems like if you use... And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's an optional rule. But if you use this optional rule, you can pretty much play whatever you want any way you want. So you can say, hey, you know what? Uh, I want to play one of the traditional... Uh, you know, species available to me, a mountain dwarf, whatever, but I would like to be, uh, you know, a bard. So my mountain dwarf is going to get the bonus in charisma, not in the constitution or whatever bonuses a dwarf would get. So I do think that's interesting. Now, there is, and I talk about this at the end a little bit, so I'm just going to touch on it here. There is a strangeness where, like, you could, like, let's say, play a half lane and get your plus two bonus in strength, where that's a little bit weird to me, but again, I think when you're playing the edition, you have to just kind of go with the flow there. Um, so, anyways, uh, let me know what you guys think about that. I'm curious what people think about the idea of playing a game like 5th edition, like a more modern style of game where you can pretty much pick your race and then just take the bonuses however you like them. You know, is that something that is more interesting or less interesting to people that don't typically play that system? 
So let me know. Anyways, let's get down to the calls. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Only halfway through your PC class creation, species, taboos, and some calls episode. But I want to talk about the idea of custom unique classes and using the existing classes to create those. I am 100% on board with this idea. I think it's fine. And I've always kind of felt that way. You don't need all these tons of classes in these games. You, You can just use the basic classes and modify them a little bit to fit what you need. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I, you've already expanded on it quite a bit, so I don't need to bore listeners with my blathering about it, but I'm with you 100%. I think you could easily have your three core classes and go off of that. You know, somewhere I have, um, it's a, one of uh, Dyson Logos put out a set of zines at one point. I believe that they're on DriveThruRPG uh, with Pay What You Want. Well, they were when I got them anyways, but you can pay. I think I paid a couple bucks each for them. But anyways, in one of them, he's got like all the the BX type classes. I think it's for Labyrinth Lord, so it's Labyrinth Lord classes. And then he has, I don't know, it might be a D10 of different like styles. So like under Fighter, for instance, you might roll a D10 and get Paladin. And then what that will do is give you like some minor modification. So that's also another way to do it, right? You could either, you could have it so that you've got 50 classes... Um, when you really break it down uh, that people can choose from because I guess the downside to only having the core three and having the players just tell you what they want is that some players might not know what they want especially if they're new to the game so I guess there is that but of course then they can just play kind of you know bog standard fighter or magic user or cleric you described the D&D game I would like to be playing in I agree with you and maybe I'm gamist. I don't know. I'm 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 a social gamer ultimately, but level caps never bothered me. You know, as far as for the demi-human races, I'd never had an issue with level caps, and I think that the push to exceed them or give them abilities beyond those, you know, is just people trying to. Well, there are various reasons people may want to do that, but yeah, I, I don't see a reason with strict level caps, and. I, I like the idea that they're not totally integrated. Now, you could have maybe a city here or there, a free city, a, a Casablanca, where you, you know you have the Dwarvish barkeep and all that stuff. But for the most part, I think having them in separate societies makes the most sense. Maybe, well, Middle-earth is an example of this, right? We're really the closest, or the hobbits and the humans. And when you move further away, of course, the hobbits become creatures of legend. So in Bree, right on the edge of the Shire, yeah, you'll have hobbits working in bars and whatnot, tending stables. But once you move to Gondor, hobbits are just legend, you know, or, or Rohan, they're a legend, right? So I, I kind of like that, that kind of world where the demi-humans are pretty rare, you know, rarely encounter. Or for people that like movie references, Hawk the Slayer, you, you know, your, your giant and your, your elf you know they're they're very rare creatures they're kind of the last of their kind yeah, i definitely like the idea of some creatures like dwarves or elves or halflings like creatures that you can play species you can play i guess as player characters might be in certain parts of the world considered uh like they don't exist anymore you know where so like a dwarf goes comes in a town in an area where no dwarves have been seen in 10 generations 
that might be like, wow, dwarves actually exist. That, that actually could be really interesting to play into the game. Especially if you're doing something where there's a lot of journeying going on, like more Lord of the Rings style, where like you're traveling from, you know, across large distances away from your original home world, home world, homelands. I'm thinking home worlds because I was thinking of BJ's uh, space thing, but same thing, right? Like you end up flying to some planet, right? You're doing a Spelljammer campaign, and you fly to some sphere or you fly to a planet and you land and they're just like, whoa, what? Hold on. Humans still exist? I thought they were a legend. That could actually be kind of interesting. I do find the vulnerabilities interesting. That's one thing I always liked with Shadowrun was the idea that if you played one of these, what they, they didn't call them metahumans. That's what DC calls superheroes. Well, whatever they they said the you know the other um, races were in Shadowrun. I, I forget what it was, but you know they had those vulnerabilities, maybe to tech or maybe to metal or maybe to plastics, and and I like that, and I like the idea of Elves being vulnerable to silver, and maybe dwarves to sunlight. I I do like those ideas, but like you, I question the need to bring them in after they've been in the world for so long. But just start with them. Although that might be too punishing to start with them, but definitely maybe phase them in right. So after fifth level, or after X number of experience points, then they start to kick in. So maybe it's I don't know. It is an interesting idea. Yeah, the adding them again. That to me, I think it's a little bit uh, could be just looked at as part of the game meta, if you will. But um, I think the other way you could make it part of the narrative would be to uh, to basically be like, well, you know, the dwarves has now spent so much time, uh, you know, above ground that now they're they're having an issue with the sunlight um, or that kind of thing. Or perhaps maybe the opposite. Now that I'm thinking about this, maybe when dwarves first come out. On lower levels, they have trouble seeing what they see perfectly in the dark. But if they, as they level up, they start to lose the ability to see in the dark because they've been spending so much time above ground. So it's kind of a, a sacrifice where um, if you want to keep playing the character beyond a certain level, they're going to start losing some of those dwarven traits. Maybe that's actually what uh, Mignon meant. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to have, hopefully I'll hear this and love a little back and forth. I hope that Minion, aka Rob, does call in and give you some feedback because this and, and may or maybe show up on your podcast or show up on your YouTube channel, because I think this is an interesting discussion and I look forward to, to hearing these ideas played out. The, the idea of elves that are vulnerable to silver or maybe become more vulnerable, you know, it's just as appealing as the idea of the, you know, the undead that devolves into a ghost or, or something like that. I, I think there's, you know, those are neat ways to, differentiate differentiate your world from the standard fantasy tropes. We're actually, we're going back to the, the original fantasy tropes, right? Yeah, it's interesting. So a couple of us have grabbed going to this Wizard of Oz thing. I haven't talked about it on my podcast, but I, like you, I called into Goblin's Henchman and Joe over Hindsightless has been talk, talking about Wizard of Oz over there quite a bit. And I've called into him. We've been discussing what rule systems to use and the idea of like return to Oz. And, you know, personally, I think Wizard of Oz would work best as a portal fantasy game where you come in as humans and don't know anything about the world because the thing with the books are you need to experience the weird and the wonderful things that are happening and it needs to be odd and not make sense. And a surprise, I I think if you already know all the mechanics of how everything works, because you're playing you know, munchkins or 
flying monkeys or whatever. And I think that would kind of, it wouldn't be as fun a game as if you're just humans that pop in this weird, wonderful world. Oh yes, I 100% agree with that. You, uh, you need to, the Oz should be a destination and it should be weird, right? If you, if you live in Oz, then it's not so interesting. Like I wouldn't have anybody be the Tin Man. That wouldn't make any sense. Um, However, I, I, I like the idea of the, I shouldn't say however, I like the idea of the portal idea. I was thinking back when I first started putting together my idea for my OD&D campaign, I was looking at a lot of these different worlds, and like I have the Carcosa book, which was originally done for OD&D, and then they redid it for Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and it's so weird. Then uh, all the hexes and stuff, they're really interesting, and I thought it'd be fun to run something there, but I don't know if I'd run a, want to run an entire campaign. And then I was reading the Clark Ashton Smith uh Hyperborean cycle and, you know, all the stuff where they're traveling to Saturn and all these other weird things. And I thought, man, it could be really fun um, to do a campaign where it's where you are kind of portal jumping, you know, where you've got people that are traveling through these various different worlds for different types of things. And uh, Oz would actually probably be a very, very good world to use for that. So um, I'll have to add that to my list for sure. Hey Daniel, it's BJ. Thanks for the uh, the call out in the the latest episode. I'm glad I could provide a little um, something for you to pick up and run with and, and go off with your own ideas. That was really good. Uh, making your own classes, I think that's a really cool thing. I think that goes back. I think Gygax, Garrett Gygax, even always said he would let a player play anything. He would just try to find a way to make it fit in the within the scope of the game so that it wasn't underpowered or overpowered or, or inappropriate. But uh, so yeah, I, th- I think I could see doing that as well. So I just saying, I, I, can I play a character kind of like this? Nothing, nothing we got seems to fit. Um, the game I'm playing, I'm not sure other than my son what these other kids have done. They may need a little more structure and introduction to get started. They may not as be familiar with the tropes, or or they might very well say, hey, could we play this instead? And if that happens, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. I also like the idea um, of a. Uh, Demi humans having a, 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 a limit where they reach their kind of normal potential and then they have to take on taboos based on, you know, their culture or, or something specific to that in order to sort of remain a part of the human world and continue to, to be there and advance and things like that. that. That's a really cool idea. So I'm glad you included that. I think you got that from Goblin Tenchman, I believe, in a tweet, if I remember correctly. Um, so, yeah, more good stuff. Thanks. Enjoyed the episode. Take care. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I, I really like what you're doing with these kids. And you, you might be right, right? They might not have a, an idea of what tropes people normally play. I wonder, though, if that's even more interesting, right? Because they, they probably involve themselves in content that, that we don't, as adults, necessarily watch or look at. Well, I speak for myself, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super curious what, what classes and races they pick. And also what else uh, you create for them as you go. So that spelljammer thing sounds super cool. The uh, the taboo thing came from Mignon Rob at uh, Confessions of a Wee Timurie Spushi. So uh, yeah, just to give credit where credit's due, uh, I think it's a really great idea and very, very cool. Um, lots of great ideas coming this way. I, I love the collaborative process um, that goes through it. And, and uh, yeah, so looking forward to what else uh, you create. Hey Daniel, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Was just listening to your episode where you're talking about letting players create their own classes at the table. 
I think for classes it works really well, and the way you described it is is bang on. I have I have no issue with a player coming to me and wanting to create a custom class and understanding it might need to be rebalanced or tweaked along the way. The area I think that if you're doing world building, especially for a long term campaign, and you want the players to have buy in on the world, um, that maybe you can't do in that same manner is is races. So if you're trying to establish a back history of the world or what have you, you may need to have the races that are in the world up front. But the individual classes that those races play, assuming you're not playing races class, um, you could definitely do that on the fly, mixing and matching however you wish. Um, so just my thought. I think uh, classes, yes. Races, maybe. Uh, but probably want to have the races done ahead of time. Keep up the great work. Take care. Yeah, that's a very good point about the races, right? I mean, if you're trying to establish some kind of lore or history of your world, um, you may not want uh, the player characters or the players to just walk up to your table and say, hey, I want to play an elephant person or a, a mule person or a snake person or whatever. Or maybe you already have those in your world and you have it conceived a certain way and you don't want them to play them because ultimately they're going to be the bad guys and maybe that'll cause problems later on you know, for, for your player who walks into town and they're just like, oh, a snake person. So... Um, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I generally am much looser with my world building, I'd say. So what I typically would do is if a player wanted to play something like that, I would maybe sit down with them and, if it seemed reasonable, um, add it. Now, of course, if I'm running a swords and sorcery campaign and everybody's more or less playing humans and somebody comes up and wants to play some kind of angelic, uh, you know, goat person, that's probably not going to fly. So so obviously, right, it needs to be be balanced out with the players and stuff. Another way to do it, and this is what I did when I ran a short campaign in Dolmanwood, uh, Gavin Norman's uh, world, I guess, or location, whatever. Um, he has some cool races in there. They, usually they're set up as uh, playable, but I told the players, players they, could, they were not allowed to play them, and everybody had to play humans to start with, because I wanted to make sure that they were introduced in the way that I felt like they should be. In other words, they have, like, for instance, the one that I ended up, somebody ended up playing was a moss dwarf. I didn't want somebody to just play the standard dwarf because a moss dwarf is a much different uh, creature in my mind. So I didn't want somebody to just be like, oh, a moss dwarf, and then play them like one of the dwarves from The Hobbit. So you could do that too, I suppose. Like if you've got, even with your elves, dwarves, and halflings, you could tell player char- players right up front, uh, I don't want you to play these yet until you encounter them because I want you to see how they are in my world. And the DM can then some give the players some... Uh, actual example with them playing it or I guess you could just talk about it but that's that's a pretty good point right races do seem to have a lot more I mean I suppose you could make the argument for classes that oh no in my world there wouldn't be rangers because uh, I don't know why you wouldn't have rangers but who knows you know uh, but yeah I think races would be a lot more uh, difficult to squeeze in to let a player play anything but I suppose that just depends on your world so yeah thanks for calling and that was a really really good point Hey Daniel, this is Manion, also known as Rob here. Um, Yeah, essentially you've got it right, uh, or at least what I was trying to say about the uh, halflings, elves and dwarves with their so-called taboo, and you'd have to make a list of those things and roll them. Perhaps that's something you could do with a player. Um, But uh, I'm not going to go on any more about that just now because uh, I'm on the way to work. But I was thinking about dwarves and why do dwarves have this anti-magic, the saves on... Um, versus magic and stuff and in AD&D of course they, they can't use certain magic items so why is that and I was thinking well perhaps it's because they channel they channel, channel magical energy through their body without it actually affecting them as well maybe it goes into items maybe they're able to create magic items because of that um, of course then the ramification is why don't why don't uh, 
Why do spells like heal or other things like haste work on them? Or should they work on them at all? Mm. But I definitely think this relationship between the elves, dwarves and halflings is important. That is, you know, have them in different spheres as reflecting different types of uh, spirit or, or something. Uh, and, and, and as such, you know, they're clearly different species from humans. So maybe, yeah, no half-elves. Uh, and by extension, no half-orcs, you know. Um, that solves some problems that people seem to have uh, with the so-called races. Um, what else? I don't, I don't know. But yeah, um, it's interesting to tie them into some kind of a... Tie them into the world, eh? Like that. Halflings is the question now, isn't it? I'm not sure if I have an answer for that yet. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk to you later. Oh yes, this is very interesting, right? Why, why don't, uh, why, why is it that dwarves get a, a and halflings too, actually in AD&D, um, I'm not sure about, yeah, I think in BX as well. I don't know about in, in uh, OD&D. Why do they have such great saving throws um, against magic, but yet magical thing effects that they want to work on them work, right? I've often thought that was interesting too because uh, there's been times where players have cast spells on other players that normally gets a saving throw and uh, the player is like no no I'll, I'll let uh, I'll you know I will just automatically let it happen to me I won't save against it but how do you get do you get to make that choice um, you know this is kind of an interesting thing I, I wonder how how the game would be if when the cleric threw a healing spell at everybody if they had to make a save and <laughs> of course that probably would be a little off balance because the higher level they are the the more likely they wouldn't be healed, so that might be kind of weird, but <laughs> the idea that, like, you know, all magic is, is uh, bounces off dwarves or, or halflings is kind of interesting, and honestly, in my opinion, and I could be wrong about this, that is actually how magic resistance works. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at AD&D, but I'm pretty sure, because I'm running so long, uh, but I'm pretty sure that somebody, if something has magic resistance, it resists all magic, like, both good and bad. So, um, I suppose if it was casting a spell on itself, maybe it wouldn't, but I, huh, I'm going to have to go back and look at that, but this, <laughs> this definitely interests me. And yeah, halflings, hmm, I'm not sure, I, did, <laughs> I don't know why, but we were, like, I was, we were t- talking about dwarves, I was talking about dwarves with my friend Nikki, and we were, the idea I had for halflings initially was that, that instead of the, kind of, you know, trying to, I don't know, break tropes, but just go from different ideas, and instead of having the halflings be um, the farmers and settle down and homebodies... I was thinking about making them the opposite, where they were uh, nomadic and that they were traders, because I kind of had the uh, the idea in my head almost like the Jawa from uh, from Star Wars. You know, these little tiny guys that just travel around and uh, trade with people, and maybe have a little bit of a kind of a reputation of not being so um, so honest all the time, <laughs> like they're traders essentially, and, and and maybe they are the branch between the various races where. Um, you know, everybody deals with the halflings, but not everybody deals with, with each other. So that was kind of my initial idea. Although, strangely enough, as much as I love halflings, and I always, you know, when I wasn't playing a thief, I always played a halfling, well, or halfling thief in AD&D. Uh, I, you know, as I've gotten more into OD&D and looking at the different races and stuff, I'm kind of fine with not having uh, halflings be a major race. I think part of that has to do with how small they are, and just, you know, I don't know. Just with more life experience, I just realized that somebody who is, you know, two and a half foot tall, while they will have a lot of advantages, there's just so many things that, 
if you were in a dungeon and you were going to play it out, it just doesn't make sense, you know, how they would possibly be able to do so many of the things. So just the, the process of, like, opening doors and things would, would seems like it would be difficult for somebody so small. So, you know, I, I maybe that just... I should just forget about that. I know that in, in a 5th edition campaign I was playing, and actually Andy Goodman's 5th edition campaign, uh, my first one, um, one of our uh, one of the other players played a gnome barbarian. And I think in 5th edition, gnomes are like 2 feet tall. Or maybe that somebody can tell me who plays 5th edition. And, you know, it, you after, you know, it was like a silly thing at first. It was like, oh man, tiny little barbarian. But then, you know, once you're rolling through the game, you, you forget this person's 2 feet tall because they're delivering 30 points of damage every time with their club, and it just becomes kind of a silly thing. So I wonder if having races that are so physically different from each other and not making some kind of moderation on uh, how they attack or, or something it makes sense, really. I, I mean, I understand why people do it, because they don't want to deal with the intricacies and they want people to have balance and it to be, quote-unquote, fair. But at the same time, it's kind of like if you choose to play a tiny little person, you will have certain advantages, right? You'll be able to hide... You'll be able to do all these other things, but, you know, you really shouldn't be able to do the things, you know, that some of the things that somebody that's much bigger than you can do, because size and bulk does make a difference, especially when it comes to, to strength, you know. There's plenty of, uh, you know, very heavy set people that could lift more than you know, a wiry in-shape, we'll call it in-shape for lack of a better word, person. Um, so, I don't know, maybe I'm getting too much into the details, and that's the stuff I don't really like, so... Sometimes it's easier just to, to, you know, brush under the carpet and just say, well, you know, I'm not going to worry too much about halflings, but uh, I am curious. I'm sure I will have them because I can't create a world with no halflings. That would be <laughs> that would be sacrilege to Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I think if you have any demi humans, you've got to have the three core, right? I, I can't see anybody. I'm curious what people think. Like, could you create a D and D world where there wasn't the at least the equivalent of halfling? You know, if you didn't use halflings, maybe you'd use gnomes or kobolds or something tiny like that. Is that just a race that we need to have for a species uh, in the game? Or would you be fine with playing a game that had, like, dwarves and elves and, I don't know, dragonborn or something, you know, so that you didn't have any of these tiny races? Um, curious people think. Anyways, uh, thanks for calling in, Rob. And uh, this may be something that would be fun to bounce back and forth, so if you're interested, let me know. All right, looks like we've got a couple of uh, packages here to look at. A little unboxing action, a little unenveloping, maybe. Uh, the first one is um, from GM Games, which is, of course, uh, Tim Shorts. I've been a longtime supporter of him on Patreon. If you guys do not uh, do that, it's definitely worthwhile. Um, he sends out nice physical rewards. It's essentially a you know an envelope like uh, about the size you get a greeting card in. And let's see what we got here. Okay. Okay, well, and PC card. Uh, these are laminated cards. They're you know, maybe like six by nine. Uh, this one is a third level Circle Viz Hunter. Looks like a magic user. So these are, you know, you got different NPCs here. Viviana. Um, you could use these probably, obviously, as NPCs. Oh, a lot of cargo, but. Uh, or, you know, I have even uh, at times pulled these out and given them to players to use as player characters. Gives a little background on them. It's on a nice little laminated sheet, and they usually have uh, interesting little magic items. Looks like she has something called Cloak of Smoke. So pretty cool. And we've also got The Maggot King by Tim Shorts. Art by Yuri Prokowski Domingos. It's Micro Adventure number 98. 
And uh, these micro adventures are great. You can throw them in uh, to your campaigns, which is what I normally do, or sometimes I run them as just like really quick one shots. This is without giving too much away. It looks like this is a little dungeon, maybe three rooms. It's got uh, about five locations here and a little background and story going on. So this could be a fun little uh, adventure. And what else do we have here? Something else as well Crystal Hunters. Uh, micro location 34. Okay, so this is a location. Sometimes Tim will do. Um, there's not necessarily an adventure attached to these. Usually they're just kind of cool little areas. And again, you can put them into uh, your own campaign. Or there is actually a. Was it Commodore Forest? I think he calls it. Is kind of his location he's working on. So pretty cool. Uh, check out Tim Short's Gothridge Manor. Uh, and of course, he's here on Anchor as well. But um, his Patreon is really great. And. Uh, you know, give you a little stack of adventures that you can uh, can throw into your campaign if you uh, don't, or just get inspired by. Or those NPCs are really fun. All right, now I've also got this is Amazon Prime. It's one of those like plasticky envelopes. Let's see. Cut this one. Oh, oh yes, this is exactly what I thought. All right, so this is Hanna Barbera's classic connection. This is Shazam, not Shazam. Shazam was the uh, was Captain Marvel, right? This is Shazam. It's a uh, this is the complete series. Um, it looks like um, it's got a little special feature in it. So this is the I think they're a brother and sister, two twin teenagers. Yep, they're twins, so they don't look alike. Um, Chuck and Nancy uh, recombine the halves of a mysterious ring. They're instantly transported to ancient Egypt as masters of an all-powerful genie named Shazam. Now, with the help of the mighty Shazam, the twins seek w a wizard who li lives behind the beyond. The only person able to help them return home, but even as the teenagers pursue their quest, that every evil sorcerer in the desert kingdom desire the twins' magic ring and will stop at nothing to gain the power it grants over Shazam. So this is a fun little Hanna Barbera um, cartoon. Uh, you know, I think Warner Brothers has these now, and I don't know if they're streaming it on their service, but I'm part of way too many streaming services. At, uh, these days, so like I'm not going to join a streaming service just to watch a cartoon, and this pad popped up in you know the and the uh, <laughs> I don't know how somehow it popped up in U in YouTube uh, a um, a blurb from it, and I was like, oh, I remember that show being really fun as a kid. So uh, <laughs> we shall see. I'll have to give a review of this. It's uh, I think it's 36 episodes, but they're all really short, so I think it's probably about maybe like just a few hours of, of TV. I don't think I'll be able to sit down and consume it all at once though. So. It's probably taking me a little bit to uh, to actually watch, but I'm pretty excited about Shazam. Let me know, uh, you know, if you guys listen to these or watch these old cartoons and which ones you were kind of your favorites. Okay, so thank you for listening and uh, calling in. Let's get some more calls going. This is really fun. We're getting some conversations. I'm pretty excited about this idea of these demi-humans um, and what we can do to make them like a little bit more flavorful we'll call it, because um, I think we all fall into these, uh, the standard tropes, we fall into them, and we're just like, yeah, a dwarf is this way, or a halfling is this way, an elf is this way, and I think it's fun to sometimes break out of that and try something new. In any case, uh, thank you to all my callers, and I will talk to you all soon.